The word of the Lord. I, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we are to preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, we uh, come before you this morning, and we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, that you would help us to be able to see that you are the almighty God, the savior of men, and that we stand in awe of your grace and your love that has saved us even from our own destruction, Lord. And this morning, as we look into your word, we we want to learn more of how Jesus became our righteousness our sanctification, and our redemption, and to not replace that with anything else. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen.
Well, before I begin, I just I need to ask a question here. Um, the question is this. Is there anybody in here that works for a car dealership? In all seriousness, because I need to make sure that I, as I tell the story next, uh, that I'm careful here, okay? And I realize the camera's rolling back there, but... Um, uh, I don't know how many of you have actually gone into a car dealership to um, start the process of purchasing a vehicle. I've done that a couple of times, and I can tell you that, um, you know, in doing that, that it's, you never know who you're going to meet there. You just don't know what kind of people you're going to meet. And um, I, I remember one time going into a car dealership to, to ask some questions and to begin the process of purchasing a vehicle, and it was about... It was after work in the evening time that I decided to stop by, and uh, I walked through the dealership, and believe it or not, that, you know, they weren't like coming sprinting out trying to fight over this customer, and I felt a little bit like, hey, what's the deal here? Usually, you know, you walk in, and, and they're like piranhas all over you, right? And so um, I had to walk through the dealership to find somebody, and there was a guy sitting, they were all sitting kind of at their little cubby areas, and, and the one closest to me there, um, we made eye contact. And as we made eye contact, um, he just kind of waved to me like, come on over. And I could see he was on his computer, and I thought he was probably finishing something up there. And uh, so he said, you know, have a seat right here. And, and we started to talk a little bit uh, as he was trying to close up whatever he was doing there. And I just kind of shared with him really what I wanted to do. And, and then I realized that he was asking me questions because um, he didn't really want me to dive into too much just yet. He, he wasn't quite ready for that. And so um, he asked me some general questions about who I was and, and about uh, my associations and like work and things like that. And, and I guess through the process of all of that, he deduced that I was a Christian. And he just kind of paused and he stopped and he looked at me and he said to me, and this just kind of struck me as kind of funny, was, oh, I'm a very spiritual man. And, uh, you know, you almost don't really know what to do with a statement like that in the moment, right? And uh, I wasn't trying to evangelize him in any way. So I just, you know, kind of kept my thoughts to myself to see what would happen next. And you know, I realized he was trying to kind of chum with me a little bit to keep me there and make sure we get, he gets a sale, right? Um, and so as we went through um, what I thought was going to be just, you know, we'll kind of, kind of get in, get the information, and I'm going to get out of there. I'll just kind of stick to my script and my agenda that's here. I realized this was not going to be quick. And uh, what should have taken maybe about 30 minutes um, it felt like an eternity, an earthly eternity in there. And um, here's what I found out. He mentioned to me, hey, this is my third day on the job. And I go, oh, man, I got the rookie here. Okay. So whenever I asked a question, you know what happened? Uh, I'm not quite up to date on that one yet. They haven't quite trained me on that one. So he would try to, you know, flip through some information to take a look or get on his computer. And then, of course... He didn't find the answers, and then his computer didn't want to work right, and then we'd go out, and, you know, whenever something wouldn't go right, he'd start to talk and ask some questions or say some things, uh, more religious type of statements and questions, and I remember just kind of thinking to myself, 
oh man, can anything else go wrong here, I guess, you know, that kind of thing, because the statements were kind of outlandish. And I just remember we're out there and he'll, we're walking out. He says, you know, I used to race motorcycles. And that was when I started to believe in spiritual things. And I started to think, yeah, it's probably a good time to start believing, I guess, right, you know? Um, and uh, so we go and we're going to take a look at a vehicle and he's supposed to have the keys with him, right? And of course, he has the wrong keys. So he's like, hold on, I'll be right back. Whoosh. Whoosh. He's sweating. And oh, those aren't the right keys. Hey, you know, did I ever tell you that, you know, once I flatlined and I saw the other side? I really began to believe at that moment. And I, and I suppose he meant he saw what it was like in heaven, but whoosh, he left, he had to go get the right keys because he still had the wrong keys. And he comes running back. And we kind of went through this thing for a while. And I just remember thinking to myself, okay, he's doing all the talking, and, and I would try to just, you know, make a statement that, that was, you know, if, if I was going to respond to him, I didn't want to say anything that would lead him the wrong way to, in his thinking, spiritually. So he comes back, and uh, now he's got, like, three sets of keys with him, and, you know, oh, here it is, okay, so finally we're getting in there, and, hey, would you like to take a test drive, and so get in the vehicle with him, and, um, just take a quick test drive, and, you know, he tells me, hey, you know, one time I was traveling in my, in my vehicle, and, and I didn't have my tire iron with me. And I just knew I should have had it because I was going to be traveling, but I had my jack. And sure enough, I got a flat tire. And I'm going, okay, here it comes, all right? So I had to pull over, and I'm way out there at, a, at a, like a rest stop, he says. And, and I go to my car, and I pull out my my uh, jack, but I realize I don't have my tire iron, so I see this guy that's parked up there, and I go and I ask him, you have a tire iron I can borrow? I have a jack, but I don't have my tire iron. And the guy goes, sure, here you go. So he goes, I ran back to my car and, and got my jack out, and I was getting ready to start to get that thing up, and my jack wouldn't work. So I thought, I want to go back and ask this guy and see if he has a jack. He had a tire iron, right? So he goes back to the guy, and he says, can I borrow your jack? Do you have one? The guy says to him, yeah, here, you can, you can borrow mine. That's not a problem. And then I'm thinking, come on, keep going. I just want to kind of get through this. And he's like, you know what? He goes, I changed my flat tire. I went back to the guy, gave him back the stuff, and I thanked him. He just kind of looked at me and then said, no problem, got in his car, took off, and drove off on this side road. Never saw the guy again. And I'm waiting for the punchline, right? <laughs> and he says, you know, I'm convinced that that was a higher power at work right there. And I'm going, oh, boy. <laughs> Of course, I get out of the vehicle, and I'm trying to look around, ask a few questions, and uh, as soon as we get out of the vehicle, he says, hey, what do you think about Joel Osteen? And I'm going like, okay. <laughs> and then he follows it up with his own statements about, you know, he has a really big church in Houston, and he wants to tell me more about it. Pretty soon, it's, what do you think about Benny Hinn? He's just 
evangelist, right, right off. And then he tells me, he said, what about this guy in Florida? And I, don't, I didn't catch the name, but he had another one there. And I just thought to myself, all right. You know, every time he brought up experiences or names, I would try to respond in a very short but explicit stance, though, on Christ's sufficient sacrifice and studying the Bible for direction in life. And, and the reason I tell you this was I was really focused in on the fact that I didn't want the conversation to just kind of ramble on in these other areas of things that were preferences or, or that were experiences only. And I was testing to see, does this man really believe the gospel? But he never caught on to what I was saying. And in fact, I would say that he had no interest in knowing the gospel. And, and that is really in the economy of this temporal world's thinking. It does not count the things of God as worthy of their reasoning abilities. Nor does man see these things as powerful in his eyes, does he? This temporal world that we live in is really one in which the gospel is not something that people are going, yeah, let's talk about that. They want to talk about experiences, and they want to talk about things that are, you know, religious out there, but it's the gospel sometimes that, you know, we try to bring that up, and it's going to be one of those things of like, eh, I don't know if I want to talk about that just yet. So this morning, I've titled uh, the sermon, of course, as you can see on there, that it is called Man's Wisdom and Strength versus God's Foolishness and Weakness. And as you can tell, this is not really just a play on words because these are the actual words that we just read about. And so um, I want to tell you just a little bit more about uh, the letter to the Corinthians here was aimed at correcting some things that were wrong in their beliefs. You know, last week our brother Ed was uh, preaching on discerning what is truth and that the only truth that we have is biblical truth. And well, this week we're going to be looking at how the world sees that truth and that wisdom of God. And, and of course, they see it as foolishness. They see it as weakness. And I want to remind you this morning that the church must guard itself from using the wisdom of this world's thinking. And I want to introduce you an element of faith that needs to be built up in us through the following uh, proposition that we're going to take a look at today. You see, the economy of God's kingdom is built from the most foolish and despised wisdom of this world. And yet, it is incomprehensible to the human mind. showing the absolute supremacy and glory of God. I'm going to give you a moment just to kind of let that sink in and for you to think about that with me. You see, the problem that the perishing face is that saving faith looks stupid. And it seems rather insufficient. And at times... I want you to know that even the body of Christ 
reverts back to the wisdom of humanity and thinks it needs to add something from those days to make it substantive. And it's like, at times we feel like, I kind of have to craft that gospel message in such a way that it's appealing to other people. And it even seems that way to us sometimes. One pastor put it this way. It was possible in Paul's day, and I believe that it's rampant in our day, in churches, on the TV, the radio, the internet, to try to build faith by calling attention to the wrong things. And this has a devastating effect on the mission of Christ and the church. And so as we uh, jump into um, this first portion here, which I'm calling Conform to the Gospel of Grace, we're going to see the error of the Corinthians' faith being built on a tradition that was prevalent in their culture. It was an attempt in carnality to make themselves appear substantive before others. And simply what that means is they wanted to look important. They wanted to be recognized. And so they felt like, you know, I've I've got to do something to make this look like, yes, we are important here. The passage, of course, in these first few verses, verses 10 through 17, I'll remind you, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And of course, he says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, there are three things that Paul points out in these verses. First, he calls them to unify in the name of Christ Jesus. And then second, he rebukes them for their sin of quarreling that is being reported to him. And third, he points out that their carnal desires are drawing them dangerously close to the point where the message regarding the cross of Christ is being emptied of its power. So we're going to take a look at this uh, first one here, um, which is um, a call for unity in the name of Christ Jesus. And uh, let's see here. I may have, we may have skipped something here. Looks like we're missing a slide here. So... Um, This is the first point that goes under verses 10 through 17, a call for unity in the name of Christ Jesus. This was Paul's plea, as you saw in there. He pled to them that they should see each other as brothers and to unify their fractured state by becoming of one mind and under the same conviction that Jesus is Lord over all. You know, Paul knew 
the Corinthians quite well. And if you were to kind of take a look at Scripture, you would see that in Acts chapter 18, that he had spent 18 months with them. That's a year and a half, and he ministered the gospel to them. In Acts 18, it tells us that God um, told Paul to stay in Corinth after the Jews had turned against him, because that's where he started his ministry. And the Lord uh, said, you know what? Since the Jews are done with you, go to the Gentiles. So he went to the Gentiles. And uh, there was a little bit of fear in him at that time. He's now facing people who have no sort of background about the Messiah. And so as he started to minister there, it says in that passage that God spoke to him. And here's what God told him. He said, I'm going to protect you, and I want you to stay here in this city. Because, he says, the Lord had many in the city who were his people, and the many were the Gentiles. And these are the same people now that he's writing this letter to. So Paul lived there, and he he preached the gospel in this Greek city, which was occupied by the Romans, but was still entrenched. And the need to debate, to argue, to philosophize over things in life. So the gentle exhortation that Paul gives to them is to end this carnal way of living and to unite the body of Christ. However, in doing so, here's what this means. He's telling them, look, when you unite, there are no winners here. Because you guys are in a fractured state here, and you're divided, and I'm asking you to stop in the name of the Lord Jesus, there are going to be no winners here. And so, he essentially is saying everybody was guilty for their disunity. You see, there were church wars that were going on, and people were doing all sorts of sinful things. Now, I want to unpack this idea of unity just a little bit more, because Unity means to be of one accord, and we all know how hard it is to achieve that, even with Jesus Christ being in control. And I want us to consider the arguments um, that create huge rifts in our lives, that often take much effort for everyone to forgive and not say things like, yeah, but I was right, or to kind of uh, sort of make ourselves look like, you know what, um, I'm really sorry that you felt that way. There's, a, there's one that gets used quite a bit. I'm sorry if I offended you. That's not what Paul was calling them to do. What Paul was telling them to do was to drop this foolishness. And Paul will have to show them the danger of what their actions are leading towards. Sinful behavior has a way of creating divisions. And Paul is going to address the sin among the Corinthians here in these verses. And and he does that through the chapters uh, that follow here. You can read read it for yourself. The second thing that I want to point out in this section is that Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their sin of quarreling. And um, as he rebuked them for their sin of quarreling, I want you to, to understand this, that he informs them that he has received this report from Chloe. And you might say, well, who's this Chloe? Well, apparently this was a prominent person in the Corinthian church um, who had come to see Paul in Ephesus. 
And maybe they had sent a relative or some servant to go, but somebody from Chloe, he says, has told me that there are quarrels among you, contentions, wranglings, hassles. They were splitting into factions, but not just silent factions. In fact, um, as it tells us here, they were going at it. They were fighting each other. And, and we know that they were divided into at least four groups, right? Um, they had grouped themselves uh, and identified themselves with various teachers, and, and people had found their own favorite orator. And for these people, you have to understand, this was kind of part of their own heritage, is to who's, who's really the best speaker out here? And so people had their favorite orator, and then they were disregarding the foundation of their faith as they were doing that. And this is wrong. Third, they were boasting around the excellent gifts and the ministries and the attainments of men with whom they identified as well. And so not only were they looking at this from the perspective of, you know, I want to go and listen to this person. But then, of course, as you read through the book, you'll also find that they're looking at this from the perspective of like, hey, there's certain gifts here. And this church was known for these gifts, and that church was known for this, and that church for this. And so as Paul puts it, he says, each one of you says, I follow. That's what you guys are saying. However, it didn't stop there. It went into other things like, well, for instance, baptism. As we just read, that's an issue that is there. And people were now saying, oh, yeah, but I was baptized by so-and-so, and well, my baptism was from this person and looking down at people who didn't have that same baptism. And so, of course, Paul says, thankfully, I didn't baptize any of you. These arguments had grown to the point that Paul could not wait to address them on his next trip. He had to respond with this letter immediately. And if you read through this entire letter, you see all the things that Paul had to address because of their spiritual quarreling. The man who had first brought the gospel to them was saying, I thank God that I baptized none of you except a few. Hmm. Paul did not want his name to be placed in the middle of these arguments, did he? And for that matter, I would say, neither did any of the other men. Cephas, Paul, or Peter, that is. Jesus definitely didn't want to be in there, right? And, and I'm sure Apollos, who had a, a ministry of being able to explain things, did not just stay in one place in Corinth. He did minister there, but he also traveled to other places. But none of those men would have wanted to be in the middle of this. The third thing Paul tells them is that they're on dangerous ground, and they're beginning to proclaim a false message of faith. The message the Corinthians were proclaiming from their actions was not the glorious gospel that had saved them. It was on the verge of becoming instead a cult in the name of their favorite orator. The Corinthians were not just attending their home church or their preferred church. They had created bad feelings towards other home churches and certain types of sinful behaviors that should never be practiced were being exhibited in the church to show that they were better at this or that they were better at that. As you may recall that Paul at one time had to address the fact that there was a, a, a man who was uh, basically living with his stepmother, uh, and he says, you know what? This doesn't even happen with the ungodly. 
So the gospel message of the Corinthian churches was, hey, listen, we're the real true church here that follows so-and-so, and we love everyone and accept everyone. They were trying to create churches that appealed to the unbelieving. And that is not the gospel message of the cross, to say that we'll be all things to all people. And that is why Paul stated the message of the cross, that it was being emptied of its power. The cross was no longer part of the message. And without the cross, listen, if it's not there, there's no such thing as having righteousness. There is no such thing as being sanctified. And definitely redemption then is no longer part of that message. So Paul reminded them that this was what Christ had sent him to do, to preach the gospel in its most authentic and simple form, and not by using the lingo of the day and super great arguments that would engage people and then cover up the message of the cross. That's not what he went there to do. He proclaimed the gospel, though, openly and clearly. And we, too, need to be aware of this. Beware of preachers who never want to tell of the cross who create followers by promises of being the best that you can be without identifying with Christ or the shameful cross. And don't ever let the simple message of Christ dying for our sins lose any traction as it comes out of our mouths. I want to move into the second section here of this passage here, verses 18 through 25. And and as we do that, I want us to consider that there is not a play on words here, but rather it is the way that the deprived wisdom of man, the depraved wisdom of man, sees the gospel message. You know, we think of Christ crucified as our salvation, don't we, as believers? But in the wisdom of humanity, it is seen as folly. And it makes absolutely no sense. And that's what we're going to take a look at here, because... The wisdom of that day was that the cross was a punishment for a foolish person. Now, I think I might have this one on the slide here. Let's see here. Give me just a minute here. I'm going to check and see something real fast here. Nope. Wrong set of slides here. Not the updated ones. Um, but let me just uh, tell you this, that... Um, the, the Roman Empire used crucifixion as a way to make an example out of people. And one of the things that happened here was that, you know, to hear this gospel message that Jesus Christ had died on the cross, to the world this just seems like foolishness. So I'm going to just kind of read to you some, some notes that I put together on this. Um, And that was that um, good law-abiding citizens of the Roman Empire did not end up crucified. So for anyone to hear that Jesus, the Christ, the creator and God of the universe was crucified and atoned for sins made no sense in human terms. Absolutely none. But in God's wisdom and economy, it it is only by the cross that the power of God that we can be brought to repentance. It is by dying and giving up our sinful life and receiving new life in Christ Jesus. So here is the most foolish thing that any 
God could do in man's economy for redemption. And this is the way that he sees it. God comes to the earth and he gets executed because he loves you. And all you have to do is be willing to die spiritually with him by admitting that you have been sinning in exchange for eternal life. Just doesn't add up in human wisdom, does it, to hear that message? Human wisdom teaches something different. It's similar, there's no doubt. Oftentimes the messages are very similar. Human wisdom teaches that, you know, hey, listen, there are other ways that you can achieve salvation. But don't be fooled into thinking that it's the real salvation for men. You know, one of the uh, things that um, I would just tell you to, to consider is this, is that um, if we look at one example of heroes, and this is probably a, a pretty easy one to take a look at, and we start maybe with the heroes of antiquity and the heroes of today, we throw in maybe some superheroes, you know, uh, this is really kind of a worship of man. Um, not only is it a worship of man, they, human beings like to look at stories that really allows for people to have an ability to, uh, to rise above the conflict, and their strength is in themselves. You know, in our American context, we adore the inner strength of people who pull themselves up by their bootstraps, don't we? Another similar form of human wisdom is that if you live a good life and you practice kindness, your merits will outweigh your demerits. And then you should be able to get into heaven. Now, these are all things that may sound good and they seem good, but Paul is saying, wait a second, those things obscure the gospel message if we try to add those into it. In verse 19, Paul quotes the Old Testament and he says, you know, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and he will thwart the discernment of the discerning. And God used the prophets to declare what he would do to bring his salvation. Here are some passages that you can read where, where God says, enough of your wisdom. And here is my way of overcoming your foolishness. Isaiah 29, 14. And here's what he said there. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, and with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning shall be hidden. And if you take a look at um, these other passages that are listed up here, uh, whether it's um, Isaiah 19, uh, verses 3 and 11, Jeremiah 8, verse 9, Jeremiah 10, 7, uh, even from Job and 1 Corinthians, tell you what, what you're going to see in here is that God is saying, look, enough of man's wisdom. I am outdoing him every single time. And he has no idea. None. Well, what were those wonderful things that he did that were lost from their memories, though? Let's just kind of take a quick look at the history here of what the Bible teaches us. You know, God saved his believing people by parting the Red Sea. It's, you know, consider this. They're standing at the Red Sea, and the enemies are coming, right? 
And what does God do? He opens the Red Sea, lets them walk through on dry ground. They, in fact, you know, Pharaoh's like, these guys, how smart can they be? They walked right to the sea. We're going to get them, right? They have no defense whatsoever. And what does God do? Opens up the seas. They pass through. And the Bible tells us, of course, that as the Egyptians followed them into the sea, God closes the sea up, and they are destroyed. Uh, That sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? Um, and, And for the unsaved, that's what they see. And unfortunately, even for God's own people at times, they would forget these things. It left their memory. God told them to march around the city for seven days, blowing trumpets, and be quiet until the last day, and then give a loud shout. And when you do that, the walls will fall. And the Bible tells us the walls fell, and most of the people died in that city. And, of course, here they are, the most intimidating group of giants have been slain. And they possess the land. They take it. God used an army of 300 men to defeat thousands. God used a shepherd boy with a slingshot to kill a professional warrior and a giant. God sent an unwilling prophet to tell a powerful and perverse nation to repent or be destroyed. And what happens when they hear that message? They repent. And God says, I'm going to send you Jonah, go. I know you guys hate the Ninevites. Go. And after God has to straighten him out and get him there, and he still doesn't want to do it, and he's figuring, I'm just going to say it and then get out of here. And you know what? We've gone through the book. He went up on the hill to watch, to see. In his own heart, he wanted to see the destruction take place. And God took his message, and he revealed it to the Ninevites, and he saves them. And I had to tell you, you you just kind of look at all of these things that continue to happen in history all the way to the cross. The salvation which would be offensive to the wisdom of the world, salvation through a shameful, disgraceful, and embarrassing execution of a lowly Jewish carpenter's son turned preacher who happened to be the son of God. My friends, the cross, the word of the cross is foolishness to the wisdom of this world. And that's why the wisdom of men is destructive to faith. And Paul, and we too should be very eager that no one turn to the wisdom of men as the basis of faith, but that everyone should turn to the power of God. Well, we also see that it pleases God to save those who believe the preached word. We know that um, it is an incomprehensible truth to man in his own wisdom, but to those who are called by Christ Jesus, it's believable truth. The the Jews uh, kept looking for signs, and, and the Jews wanted to see, you know, is there a Messiah who is coming? And they were looking to see, you know, and this Messiah that was going to come, of course, was going to make them kings. The Greeks, they were trying to use all of their wit and their wisdom to unlock the mysteries of the universe. 
looking down on those who were simple, poor, and barbaric. So to both the Jews and the Greeks, the gospel, which is Christ crucified, it's completely incomprehensible. It just doesn't even register for them. And it becomes a stumbling block to man's greatest wisdom. But to those who are called, those who hear the voice of God by the preaching of the gospel, it tells us here, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's the message that he was trying to get across to them. Don't start to add other things in here. I've got this covered. And yeah, it's hidden. People are not going to understand this. But I'm far more powerful even when I look foolish and weak. And so I want you to just realize as we take a look at this that we're going to look at this next part that really um, tells us more about God's folly here. And when we take a look at, at this section here, the Corinthian, the Corinthian believers here were part of God's foolishness in one sense, which in human terms, you, you can imagine they're going like, people are going like, look at these Christians. They're in this metropolis city where people are coming from all over the place. It was, they had a great seaport there where lots of trading was done. And so all the traffic kind of went up that way. It was a, a coastal line where it was, the seas were calm. And so it was a busy place. And here you have these Christians who are meeting in house churches. And, and the church, you know, kind of doesn't look right. They look like a bunch of misfits, especially as Paul is writing about them, right? And yet, these are his people. So before we look at this final section, I I would like to just take a moment to provide an analogy here that helps us to consider the position of all the redeemed and where we stood at one time. Now, I alluded to it a little earlier when I mentioned uh, the great things that God did for this tiny little nation of Hebrews. They were selected to be God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And as they obeyed the Lord, he went before them and surrounded them with security and they won battles, and they ruled the day because of God. But I want to provide an analogy right now that maybe some of you might kind of think about in, in the sense of you, maybe you've been there a little bit. Um, and, and it has to do with sports, um, something that I can remember being part of and, and seeing this happen. And working out of school, I still see it happen. And it works this way. Um, maybe some of you have experienced the feeling of being the last one picked. It's not a good feeling, right? Um, And um, being the last one picked sometimes is very discouraging, you know, and it's kind of like nobody really wants you on their team. Um, and, And in some cases, those are the kids that have to stay off and they get the next game. Well, one day, a captain comes along, and he says, you know what? I'm going to pick you first. You're going to be on my team. And your captain happens to be the best one playing. And because of him, your team starts to win. 
and continues to win and win some more. And you're like, wow, this is really cool. I'm playing with the best player out here. We're just, we're ruling the day. But when you look back at how you won, you realize that you did very little to earn the victories. Very little. You were on the court, maybe. You were in the game. And you, maybe you hardly even touched the ball. Or nobody really even paid attention to you, and it was okay. Because you were winning. You know, you get all the high fives, right, at the end of the game. You get the pat on the back. And you get to wear the crown of victory with the best player. And with that, I'd ask you to take a look at the next set of verses where it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one boast. And let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, perspective, it's, it's pretty valuable, isn't it? When you think about it. Um, I know that we generally appreciate the opportunity to be able to see the big picture, but often this is a hard thing for us because we're usually in the thick of things. And in these verses, 26 through 31, Paul brings a perspective and reveals more of their human folly. The uh, proposition uh, or the position of the, of the Corinthian believers was that they were never really considered special, even by worldly standards. They lacked education. They didn't hold any real significant power in their community, and not many of them had wealth. And this was before they were saved. So now imagine, God takes them and he says, you're my people. They were called by God, and Paul, who had helped birth the church in Corinth, calls them brothers. He doesn't look down at them. He's just brothers. He validated their salvation, and he reminded them that God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he chose the weak to shame the strong. One might say that that seems pretty harsh to call them foolish and weak, but remember that we too are frail people called to be ministers of the gospel. I've kind of been reminded of that recently, wearing my boot, walking around, realizing that, you know, this injury is going to take a long time to get better and other things that kind of come up in life. And I realize how frail I am because it not only affects me physically, it affects us mentally too, emotionally. Paul himself testified to the frailty and weaknesses that he had when he prayed to the Lord three times and he said, 
Lord, would you please remove this from me? His own thorn in the flesh, as he called it. Lord, would you remove it? Three times. And here's the Lord's reply. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Huh? (laughs) So you know what Paul says, right? He says, I will all the more gladly boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ will rest upon me. He doesn't fight it. He says, you know what? I, I need to be able to admit this. I need to allow God to be able to work in me right where I am at. You see, our salvation is fully and wholly dependent on Christ Jesus who became wisdom to us from God. God has done all the work and our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption should be a reminder that God deserves the glory. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24 tells us this, that thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, Justice and righteousness in the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You see, this is one of those things where it's like, fall into his hands. And that is the gospel message. You cannot do anything on your own to save yourself. It is a dependence upon God. And it is because of God that we are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus became wisdom for the blind and the perishing. And at one time and in one moment, it became obvious that Christ was our righteousness, that he was the one that would provide our sanctification and redemption. And I want you to consider that for yourself. He did it all. You remember that on the cross that he declared, it is finished. It was his work that would bring this. So that we might do what it says in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And that is that we would boast in the Lord and his work. You know, I want to conclude today with a a few questions here. And... um, I want you to reflect upon some of these things, not just in a manner that will, you know, kind of be forgotten, but I want you to think about these things as in, am I in line still with the gospel that I received? Am I still following that glorious gospel? You know, first, what kind of economy are you living on today? And I want you to just think about what is it that you're living on today? Are you, are you living on your works? Are you living on good thoughts that kind of help you? Or is it on the gospel? 
Is it a dependence that is there to say, you know what, I'm trying to think of things that fit with the way that God wants us to live according to his word right here. It's a hard thing to do when you're kind of running around and doing things and you're running from one thing to the next and things happen. Surprises come up. Bad news comes your way. And we talked about the foolishness that is brought into our Christian lives and, and maybe it's just time to examine some of those things, reflect on it a little more deeply. Second, does the cross of Christ still humble you today? You see, this is one of the things that Paul was getting at with, with the Corinthians here, and that is, listen, we need to be humble as we receive this. Instead of us being puffed up and, and proud and saying that we belong to this or we belong to that, is there still a humility today in you? Do you remember that day when you repented and you realized that Christ loved you and that you loved him and that you said, I will follow you? Is there still that tenderness in your heart that you exercise each day? I gotta tell you, sometimes it is hard to be tender before the Lord. But I challenge us to consider, are we still humble today because of the cross? Thirdly, third, will you share the folly and wisdom of the cross freely, knowing that it may cost you dearly? Have you been ashamed of the gospel? Have you felt like, I don't know what they're going to think about me? That is what God specializes in, by the way. He's right there to help you. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and I want to close with this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's what he wrote to them in the second letter that he writes. He says, this is life. It's hard because the world does not understand the wisdom and the strength of God. It simply sees it as foolishness. But you know it. Trust in it and allow God to be the one who carries you. Would you bow your heads and let's pray together.
Father, sometimes we, as we go through life, it's, uh, it's hard. And, and we know that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, that we need to be reminded of these things because we are so prone to falling away from it. And, and we like to lift ourselves up and we like to make ourselves look good, not only before others. Sometimes we even think we can fool you. But Father, we ask that you would help us to draw near to the cross, to allow for the work of Jesus Christ to be our righteousness, to be our sanctification, our redemption, knowing that the day is coming when we will no longer have to face these things. And we will be able to look back and say, I ran that race depending on Jesus all the way. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us as a church to encourage one another to that end, to beware of false gospels and to preach it to one another clearly that Jesus is the only way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.